Hello, and welcome to the Human Instrumentality Podcast, your guided deep dive into the seminal animated series, Neon Genesis Evangelion. I'm Ian Corey. And I'm Joseph Schaefer. In this episode, we cover episodes 15 and 16 of Neon Genesis Evangelion, along with the darker tone and themes they introduce. We won't spoil anything from future episodes, but we will point out foreshadowing where it's relevant. For now, Human Instrumentality Podcast Unit 8, launch. Episode 15, Lies and Silence. Fyutsuki and Gendo are on a helicopter over Lake Arashi 2 and 3, craters left by angel deaths. Fyutsuki notes that Sele are displeased with nerves delays, but Gendo says Adam and the dummy plugs are proceeding as planned. When pressed about Ray, he doesn't have anything to say. Fyutsuki also makes reference to, quote, that man, unquote. Gendo is likewise not concerned about this mysterious person or the Marduk Institute, if you remember them. In Kyoto, Kaji, probably the person they were talking about in the chopper, meets his contact from the Magma Diver episode, who tells him about a shadowy corporation with connections to the Marduk Institute, mostly dummy sites. Meanwhile, in Tokyo 3, Asuka calls Kaji, and, getting his voicemail, pretends to be in the middle of being accosted by some pervert as a way to get Kaji's attention. When class rep asks, she says that she was hoping to see Kaji the next day, but Kaji is never around, it seems. Class rep figures out that she's free and asks Asuka to go on a blind date with a friend of her sister's. In the next room, Shinji sees Rei wring out a washcloth while the class is cleaning up the classroom and becomes transfixed. Later, while the pilots are undergoing yet another sync test, Ritsuko asks Misato what she's wearing to the wedding. Misato doesn't have a dress to wear. Well, she has one, but it might be a little tight. Ritsuko remarks that there's been too many weddings lately. Everyone's getting married before they turn 30. Ritsuko also comments that Shinji seems to be brooding more than usual that day. Misato reminds her that tomorrow will be a significant day for him. In the elevator, Shinji tells Rei that tomorrow he needs to meet his father and asks her for advice since she and Gendo seem close. Rei has no insight for him. She claims she doesn't really know Shinji's father any better than he does. Shinji also remarks, somewhat awkwardly, that when he was watching her wring out the washcloth, it reminded him of something that a mother would do. This comment makes Rei blush, but her back is turned, and Shinji can't see this. Back at home, Asuka is watching soap operas when Masato comes home. She asks Masato if she can borrow her perfume, but Masato refuses. Shinji, on the other hand, is in his room with the door closed, apparently brooding about seeing his father the next day. Asuka says if he doesn't want to see his father, he should just call it off rather than saying nothing. Quote, unquote, how Japanese of him. Insightfully, Masato tells her that it's not as if he doesn't entirely want to see his father. That's why it's so hard for him. Meanwhile, in his room, Shinji flashes back to the numerous confusing moments he's had with his father thus far in the series. Misato enters to tell Shinji that it's up to him to take the first step with his father rather than run away from his problems. Otherwise, the situation won't change. She encourages him to keep his chin up. After all, he's going to see his mother, too. But when she says this, Shinji just buries his head in his pillow. The next day, Asuka goes off to her date. Misato goes to the wedding. Kaji's late as usual. And when he finally shows up, Misato fixes his tie for him and calls him a slob. Ritsuko remarks that when they're doing this whole tie-fixing bit, they look like an old married couple. Elsewhere, Shinji and Gendo are at Shinji's mother, Yui's, grave together for the first time in three years. Critically, Shinji remarks that he doesn't even remember his mother's face. Shinji asks if there are any photos of his mother, but there are not. Gendo tells him even the grave is a false front. Her body is gone. And when she died, he threw everything away. You keep what's important inside of you, Gendo says. Then a nerve gunship arrives and whisks him away, Rei alongside him. Before he leaves, Shinji tells him he was glad that they got to talk. All Gendo has to say is, I see. Bumper. 
Those women longed for the touch of others' lips and thus invited their kisses. Shinji, in his room, practices the cello. Asuka, fresh from her date, enters and compliments his playing. She says she didn't even know he was a musician, and he tells her that he started playing when he was young, but has no talent. Even so, he never stopped playing because nobody told him to. Asuka, on the other hand, was so bored by her unseen date that she left him in line for the roller coaster. After all, the only decent guy in town is Kaji. We then immediately cut to Misato, Ritsuko, and Kaji at the wedding. Misato cuts out for the restroom. Kaji jokes, not gonna bail, are you? While she's gone, he asks Ritsuko when the last time the three of them all hung out together. Ritsuko says Misato has had enough to drink, but Kaji says she's drinking to calm her nerves. While talking about Misato, we find out that she and Kaji used to live together, and that Misato never used to wear high heels. Neither of them figured she'd become the person that she is now. Kaji has also brought a gift for Ritsuko, a locket, which she seems disinterested in. She's more interested in getting Kaji to talk about his relationship with Misato, which is obviously complicated, and also knowing what he did in Kyoto. Kaji tries to duck the Kyoto question, but Ritsuko tells him to watch out. He's looking for trouble and might find it. He'd rather get in trouble while messing around with her, he says, just as Misato returns from the restroom. Ritsuko then delivers a quick monologue about homeostasis and transtasis, the drive for living beings to evolve and their desire to not change, both of which exist inside every living being, then leaves for nerve. Misato calls Shinji wasted and says she won't be home for a while, leaving him at home alone with Asuka, who instantly knows what's up with Misato. We cut back to a street at night where Kaji is carrying Misato home after she pukes in an alley. Drunk Misato apologizes, out of the blue, for suddenly breaking up with him many years ago, and says she never really found anyone else. He reminds Misato too much of her father, she says, and that's what drove her away. She also admits that she joined Nerve really more to run away from her feelings for Kaji rather than the whole line about getting revenge against the angels that she gave Shinji earlier in the series. She doesn't feel as though she chose her own fate. She ran like a coward, just like Shinji does. Misato's rant devolves into extreme self-loathing, uh, and Kaji tries to snap her out of it by kissing her. Back at the apartment, Asuka asks Shinji if he wants to try kissing her. Why? Because she's bored. Shinji says that's not a good reason. Asuka asks if he's afraid. He insists that he's not, and then Asuka leans in to kiss him. Shinji's eyes are closed, and Asuka waits for him to make eye contact, then tells him that he needs to not breathe through his nose. She plugs his nose by force and kisses him. Minutes pass. He nearly suffocates. And when they break off, Asuka runs into the bathroom to wash her mouth out, uh, gargling just peak comedic Ava right here, deciding this isn't something you should do just because you're bored. Breaking up all that comedic tension, Kaji brings Misato home. Asuka asks him to stay, but he refuses. Not before she gets close enough to smell Misato's perfume all over him. After Kaji leaves, Shinji asks Asuka why she looks so sad. She says, because she kissed him. The next day, Ray is absent at school, but around the same time, in Central Dogma, we see Ray encased in a glass tube filled with LCL, suspended over a huge uh, magical pentangle diagram. Gendo's there. Their eyes meet through the glass in Ray's tube, and Gendo smiles. 2,000 feet below in Terminal Dogma, Kaji attempts to enter the main LCL plant. But before he can, Misato points a gun at his head and accuses him of being a double agent for the Japanese government. Kaji apologizes for deceiving Misato, but tells her that Nerve, Ritsuko, and Commander Ikari are deceiving her as well. Misato chokes instead of squeezing the trigger, and Kaji opens Terminal Dogma. Inside is what appears to be an angel, pinned to a huge red cross by the Spear of Longinus. A mask bearing the Zele logo is attached to its face. Its lower torso is missing, instead producing tiny human bodies like roots. It bleeds LCL into a huge pit. 
Kaji identifies it as Adam, the first angel, the source of second impact. Episode 16, Sickness Unto Death and Then. So it's breakfast at the crew's apartment, and Asuka is very upset that the shower water is too hot. When Shinji apologizes, Asuka decides to interrogate him about his habit of over-apologizing. Misato can't seem to curb this contentious conversation between them, and Asuka calls her out on hooking up with Kaji in the previous episode. Misato denies it. But then Kaji calls and asks Misato out for drinks that night. Later, the pilots are undergoing another test. Another test! More tests! Shinji's scores are, again, extraordinarily high. He's finally beaten Asuka. In the girls' locker room, Asuka gets irritated about Shinji's performance, but Rei doesn't give a shit. When Rei leaves her alone to her thoughts, Asuka lashes out and punches a locker. The next day we see a mysterious shadow expand underneath a parked car. Overhead, the twelfth angel, Leliel, appears as a huge striped sphere floating in the sky. Misato arrives late to the command bridge, where Rizko tells her that this angel's pattern is orange, where every previous angel's pattern has been blue, and that the Avas have already been deployed. The Avas hide behind buildings, sort of like they're playing Metal Gear Solid, armed with weapons. Asuka suggests that, since Shinji has the highest sync rate now, he should lead the attack. Surprisingly, Shinji agrees, saying, quote, leading is a man's job, unquote. Misato comments that uh, they're getting too cocky. Ritsuko asks her if that's a good thing, and Misato says definitively, no. She's immediately proven right. The Ava's progress is encumbered by the umbilical cables, uh, but Shinji is nearest to the angel. He attempts to shoot it with the Evangelion pistol, but it vanishes. Then a mysterious shadow appears directly beneath Unit 1 and begins to swallow him as well as everything else around him like quicksand. Hyuga identifies the shadow as the angel's true body with a blue pattern. Shinji is swallowed completely. All signal from him is lost. Asuka and Rei manage to dodge Liliel's attack by climbing Tokyo 3's skyscrapers, then retreat. The umbilical cable for Unit 1 is retrieved, but there's nothing on the other end. Rizko calculates that if Shinji doesn't use the Evangelion at all, he can survive for 16 hours inside the Angel, which has now expanded as far outward as its body will allow. Asuka, outside Liliel's radius, gloats that Shinji got too cocky. Rei visibly upset at Asuka's being a total jackass, confronts her, asking if she only pilots the Avas for the praise of others. And Asuka says, no, she does not. She wishes to praise herself for her own actions. Misato breaks their intentionality fight up and says that she will scold Shinji about his cockiness when he's saved. Bumper. The splitting of the breast. In the entry plug, Shinji remarks that he didn't know he would be so tired just from sleeping. When he attempts to look through the Ava's eyes, he sees an infinite empty white space. The LCL around Shinji begins to thicken. Unit 1's purification function is failing, and Shinji can smell blood around him. He panics, attempting to open the plug, but to no avail. He cries out for his friends, for the women in his life, and finally, for his mother. Outside, Ritsuko hatches a plan. She wants to drop every remaining N2 mine into Liliel while the remaining Avas negate its inverted AT field. Misato objects. There's no way Shinji would survive the blast. But Ritsuko reminds her that the priority is saving Unit 1, not him. Misato slaps Ritsuko, and in response, Ritsuko tells her never to forget that he's gone because of Misato's arrogance. Misato grabs her former best friend, demanding that she explain why Nerve cares so much about Unit 1, and also, what are the Avas anyway? Ritsuko refuses to tell her, and begs for Misato's trust. Shinji, meanwhile, hallucinates a distorted vision of a train he was on previously at some point in his life. It's sunset, a dreamlike image. Something or someone is trying to talk to him. It identifies itself as Shinji Ikari with his own voice. When he and the other entity speak, 
Opposing streaks of white appear on the screen. The other claims that there are at least two of every person, their self that exists inside of themselves and the self they present to the outside world. Also, there are versions of themselves that exist entirely in the perception of other people. The entity explains that Shinji is afraid of the versions of himself in other people's minds. Shinji flashes back to the other characters' admonishments of him over the series. Eventually, he recalls the time Gendo told him good work. The other entity asks if he's going to rely on that one happy moment for the rest of his life. While Shinji and the other entity debate over how Shinji needs to be more authentic and to stop deceiving himself and running away from the pain of life, the screen shows him speaking to a shadow copy of his younger self. Critically, the other Shinji is wearing a striped shirt, not Shinji's white one. Shinji asks what's wrong with him enjoying what happiness he has and begins to scream. Back in the real world, Ritsuko accelerates her plan to at least try to rescue him while he's still alive. Inside Liliel, Shinji relives the moment that his father abandoned him and also remembers that when his mother died, Gendo was suspected of murdering her. He also remembers that Misato once praised him as well, but that memory begins to recede. Waking from his bizarre introspective dream, he realizes that he's running out of oxygen and that the heating has failed. He feels his body beginning to die. And just then, there's this swell of choral music and a phantom hand caresses his face. He sees inside the entry plug an image of his mother bathed in light, embracing him. Outside of Lilial, 60 seconds remain until all the N2 mines drop. But just then, the shadow-covered ground begins to shatter, emitting red light. Lilial's orb body solidifies and then bursts open in a torrent of blood. Unit 1 in Berserker mode tears free from Liliel and rips its spherical body to shreds in the process. Asuka, watching, is aghast at the horror of the things that they've been piloting. Ritsko in the command center opens her mouth. What exactly did they copy when they made the Avas? Masato, also in the room, wonders to herself if the Avas are more than just copies of the First Angel. And maybe more importantly... What does Nerve plan to do with them when the last angel is dead? Triumphant and terrible, Unit 1 stands victorious over a river of blood and gore. Masato pulls Shinji out of the entry plug, weeping with relief that he is alive. Shinji says he just wanted to see you one more time. Ritsuko and Gendo watch Unit 1 being washed clean after the battle and wonder if the Avas are really their allies. Ritsuko thinks the Avas may hate them. She tells Gendo that Misato is suspicious of them and of Nerve. Gendo says that's fine, but she reminds him that if Rei or Shinji ever find out the secret of the Avas, they will never forgive she or Gendo. Shinji wakes up in his hospital bed, this time with Rei next to him and Asuka outside the door. Rei is actually glad to see him, and Shinji smiles, then collapses. He says he can't get rid of the blood. Who? <laughs> ah, crap. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, so here we are. Welcome to the real Evangelion. Welcome to the darkness. Welcome to the misery and the truly surreal shit that the show is going to trade in for the rest of its run. This is my favorite angel. I just want to say that off the bat. If you if you are friends with me on Rate Your Music, this is my profile picture. Is this incredibly <laughs> bizarre? <laughs> I didn't know that. Yep, that's me. I'm the guy with Liliel as his profile picture on RateYourMusic.com. That says about as much as you need to know about me. I was going to say, if, if we're going to stick with the Rate Your Music stuff... Here's here's my analogy for any uh, classic psych rock fans about uh, Evangelion as a series. This whole series is Pink Floyd's metal, uh, and now you're about to start listening to Echoes. So mm-hmm. strap the fuck in. We've actually, I know we've been joking about during the rewatch that we do to, you know, craft the notes for each episode that we do. Basically, from here on out, I just want to binge the show. 
I mm. like my natural instinct because every single episode is so heavy and so uh, psychologically taxing. Once I get to this point, I'm just like, give it to me all at once. Like I, I just need to mainline this and come out the other side because man, doing it week by week, the way that we're doing is torturous. <laughs> it's, it's heavy. This is the first time we're recording an episode where I've watched further ahead than than the episodes we're watching in my rewatch. Obviously, I've seen the whole series many, many, many times. But in during this rewatch, I'm now like many, many episodes ahead. And it's it's sort of funny because when I started writing down the summaries for this one, I was like, damn, like this is some heavy shit. But knowing where it goes now, I'm kind of like, oh, right. The whole like interrogation thing and the ocean of blood. That's not so fucking bad. The infinite empty <laughs> void. Uh, okay. <laughs> These are two episodes that I, I think complement each other pretty well in some respects, but are also fairly different in tone in others. What I, I, I know that when Oscar was first introduced to the show, I made a point about how the show kind of doubles back on itself and has like a second pilot and goes through a lot of the same motions as the beginning of the show with Oscar uh, front and foremost so that we can kind of understand her better. I, th I feel like, Episode 15, Lies in Silence, is a new pilot for the show because it sort of is setting up how now the show can operate in an, an entirely different tonality of just realistic human drama with almost no sci-fi elements whatsoever. And the fact that it pulls that off right next to maybe the most, one of the most bananas sci-fi premises of the entire show and that these two episodes can feel of a piece is a feat. It, it really is masterful. Rewatching the first one, I was reminded of, um, I don't know if, if you were an alias person. I, I was not, but I, I was aware of it because of the J.J. Abrams connection. Alias is the best thing J.J. Abrams has done. At least it is before the, the series nosedives, because unlike... Unlike Hideki Yano, J.J. Abrams doesn't know how to end anything and isn't planning ahead. But he does get to a point where it becomes these like really intricate character dramas and the end of every episode has something sort of vaguely espionage happen. And it's a really like propulsive, intoxicating formula. Episode 15 made me feel like peak alias, which is a high mm. compliment coming from me <clears throat> which is funny also i i f i forget this episode exists sometimes but as i'm sitting here talking i said it before but i'll say it again i think episode 15 might be the best fucking episode in the series I it's hard to argue with that you know I, I feel like it's hard to compare it to something like the blackout episode which just is a like a piece of genre fiction that is incredibly functional and propulsive and fun episode 15 is really dark and really kind of uncomfortable at times that whole like i think as a kid watching that episode i found it sort of boring because it's right. so much about like adult drama and about feelings that i had yet to actually experience in my life now as you know someone who just rsvp'd to my friend's wedding you know again like the experiencing the show as one of the adults has just made the show so much richer for me that whole sequence at the wedding, them getting ready, them being there, and then everything that happens afterwards is just, holy shit. Like, the show just is operating on a whole other wavelength that I don't think any anyone watching linearly when it came out could have possibly seen coming. Episode 15 is masterfully emotionally observed and crafted. And it, it does a lot of the wedding thing is real, fucking real, speaking as someone who's like, 30, although it is weird for me to think about Misato as being younger than me. Then again, she's a cartoon and not real, so fuck it. <laughs> but at the same time, I think there's a lot of really critical things here that are just as consequential as any of the sci-fi elements, any of the genre elements, any of the espionage, any of the angel battles. There's really serious consequential things that happen in this episode that, that people can really relate to let's let's just go go down the list for me right sure it's mom's grave fuck just yeah. fuck it, it it's the closest we've seen him and gendo thus far and they're still so obviously distant there's the shot where they're like they're looking in different directions 
Um, and that's a motif that the episode sort of continues playing off of is like people who are like trying to be emotionally on the same page, but at cross purposes. Yeah. That's like filmically. Uh, one of the, the things that this episode does is a lot of reflections. You see the faces reflected in the grave. You see the characters looking in different directions and that's mirrored in the wedding sequence. When you see the characters reflected in glass rather than actually looking at each other. You only get to see what they are presenting of themselves reflected back to them. Which thematically ties in with the sequence where he's being sort of interrogated inside of the Diraxy, right? Like there's this, mm -hmm. the, the episode makes a this very big sort of like almost monotonous point about like, let's talk about subjectivity and, and how difficult it is to communicate with other people. And the fact that, you know, you're only ever really communicating with the, the selves that other people want you to see. And you only really understand your own interpretation of that person they set up the metaphor perfectly well visually where it's like you know misato kaji and ritsuko talking speaking at one another's half reflections in the glass uh, everything about the wedding it the cocktails afterward the drunk hookup the drunk hookup with your ex putting my whole ass out there just because i've done it feels a lot like this this it, cartoons shouldn't even anime shouldn't hit that close to reality but in in my experience it does I feel like the quality of the filmmaking mirrors the uh, intensity and emotional realness. Like it up, it upgrades its stylistic hallmarks in order to like actually hit these emotional points for me. It like shows me that I should be taking it seriously. The editing in the in episode fifteen, I think, is like some of the best in the show at all. Like the sequence where Masato, Asuka, and Shinji are all leaving the house, and it cuts it so that they all like finish the phrase of like leaving the house together, even though they're all leaving separately, leaving Pen Pen behind. And then the editing at the wedding itself, how it just blazes through it, but gives you all of the details to like bring that experience to life. So fucking beautiful. I do want to go back because I don't want to let it slide to the graveyard. Let's let's do the graveyard. You're right. Let's talk about it. I know that we're, like, th we're going to be running away from a lot of pain to talk about other pain <laughs> in these episodes from here on forward. But and ain't this... that the emotional truth that this series <laughs> is trying to convey when you run away from the things that hurt you, you're just going to find an even greater hurt. So this is the longest, I think, that Shinji and Gendo have spoken to each other since episode one. This is the longest is. they've had a conversation about anything outside of the angels or piloting the Avas. It is the only time we really see Gendo attempting to impart any wisdom to Shinji. It's the only moment of like fatherhood that we actually ever see in the show. And God, is it fucking weird. Gendo's advice basically is that you should throw away everything except the one thing that motivates you. The one, like keep the one thing close and like fuck everything else. And that just tells you everything you need to know about Gendo is that he has one motivation. He's driven by that to the expense of everything else in his life. He's he's so up his own right-hand path magical ass that he's only capable of communicating in obtuse prophecy. Because again, they're going to mirror this in the next episode, but the things that are important you keep inside. Let's entry plugs and visions of people whose bodies are gone inside of... It, like... The sci-fi levels working with the dramatic level, which is working with the, the yeah. The show is now cinema. Now it's mm -hmm. cinema. And I think there's there's something so real about the experience that Masato is describing Shinji going through. The idea that he's both he's resentful of the fact that he has to meet with his father, but he also harbors this intense need to actually connect with him. You know, that's the one central memory that he talks that he's interrogated about in episode sixteen. You know, what drives him is this is this sensation of being praised by Gendo. And that's what keeps him going to the grave site, figuratively right. speaking. It's mm -hmm. why he's still trying to go through this painful process over and over again, because he's chasing the high of praise from someone who ultimately, if Gendo does care about Shinji, it's incidental. You know, like Ritsko in episode 16 saying that the priority is keeping Ava unit one alive and not keeping Shinji alive. Where's she getting that call from? You know, it's not from yeah. Ritsuko herself. It's from Gendo. It's all right. this handed down priorities from Zele into nerve into Gendo and then downward from there. 
it's the hierarchy of reality. God, now we sound like we're on fucking acid. We sound like we're inside the Diraxy interrogating ourselves. I was going to say, but it, it he, in a weird way, Gendo does sort of try to like, I don't know if he tries. That's too, giving him too much credit because he's like, it, it, anyone with any emotional intelligence needs to be watching the series and be like, your father is, is emotionally abusive and cruel and is a bad person and you don't need him. And, you know, I think some of this series is maybe about him finding the strength to sever that tie, which mm -hmm. even when they've been apart for three years, it's obvious he can't. But his dad still can't help but, like, offer him some sort of truth. And it's sort of things like, oh, you've come here to mourn? This grave is empty. Your mother isn't here. You know, like, you can't come here to find closure with your past here next to me in this mass-produced place. This place that looks kind of, in its own way, like an empty void. He's like, you can't mm -hmm. find... His, his dad still, like, tells it to him. He's like, you can't... You're not going to find the heart of things here with me. Stop trying. Right. Yeah. It's This is, like, a crucially the first time that we've really had any protracted conversation about Shinji's mother as well. It's been this thing that's kind of hovered in the background of the show for quite some time. But this pair of episodes, I think, is maybe the most explicit about dealing with the issue. And it's kind of the first time that a lot of other characters are able to talk about it, too. I know we're we're probably going to talk a lot about the motherhood angle as we talk more about episode 16. But I want to wrap up a few other things about episode 15 first. One, let's just get some of the Kaji spy shit out of the way because it's it's crucially plot important and I want like everyone just to be clear about how the flowchart works. Right. So in that bizarre conversation that he has with his uh, you know, his liaison to the Japanese government at the beginning of the episode, it is essentially established that the Marduk Institute and Nerve are both controlled by Zele, but are operating separate of each other. As far as we know right now, the Marduk Institute finds children who could be potential Ava pilots, then feeds that information to Nerve. All of them answer to the Human Instrumentality Project Council, which is itself run by Zele. So now we're starting to see what the actual organization that is in charge of literally everything that's happening in the show is organized. This is also where we got the name for the podcast. That You probably put that together, but just in case you didn't, here it is. Yes, and we choose this not arbitrarily. It's kind of important. And, and we'll, Surprise, we'll, we're running everything. <laughs> exactly, yes. Now, now you begin to see the big picture. And Kaji's insistence on digging into this I think up until now, we've kind of got the impression that Kaji is too cool for school. No one can stop him. He's out here doing like Mark Hamill leaps across empty space from like one corridor of a giant tunnel to another and barrel rolling around and just being suave and James Bondish. But this is the first time that Ritzko is like, uh, you're not low. Like everyone knows what's up. Come on, don't get hurt out here. And that's an important twist. Like, turn of the situation because up until now Kaji's been kind of invincible it's sort of comically how bad of fucking spy he is like it he's only got he's only got like two, one fucking move and his only move is like let me try to find my female co-workers and like press gang myself into their panties he tries it with Maya tries the Ritzko here's a locket and she's like Jesus fucking Christ dude for real me you think it's gonna work on me Hello, you know me. No, not going to work on me. It's going to work on Misato, but critically enough, and this is, again, where like the plot part and the character driving part works together. He never suspected that Misato didn't leave him for another dude. Yeah, there's a lot that's clearly unspoken between the two of them, and it, it's, it's really exciting to get that kind of all coming out. It's one of the first times that we've actually seen Misato be truly emotionally vulnerable in front of another person. Like, we've had her relating to Shinji, opening up to Shinji over the course of the series. But this is the first time that we've actually seen her kind of wrong-footed emotionally. And mm -hmm. all of her neuroses, all of her problems, it's almost like my point being that we've, we, we now see something about Masada that we clear, clearly up to this point had not seen before. And Correct. obviously alcohol has something to do with it in this particular case. 
one. Misato does have an alcohol problem. Like that's another like little subtext that's there. But like Kaji explains why it's her alcohol problem is is related to her anxieties. Is there anything about that protracted self lacerating rant that Misato goes on that you want to highlight? Well, it's it's interesting that there's there's a few directions you could take it. So for one is like you know the episode starts with starts with sort of. Asuka berating Shinji for over apologizing or sorry the next one does right but here we see Misato over apologizing she's apologizing mm-hmm. for things she doesn't need to be sorry for she's allowed to like leave her sexual partners for any reason that she wants and she's not under any obligation to tell them anything even though like obviously she like cares about Kaji very much and maybe it was a mistake but far be it for me to judge so th- that's one one thing. The other thing is, like, it's up until that scene, you get the sense that the, the characters are built in triangles, right? The characters are built in these trinities, right? And yeah. so the, the young pilot trinity is Shinji, Asuka, and Rei. And the people who are just too old to be pilot trinity is Kaji, Misato, and Ritsuko. And up until now, you've sort of thought, or at least I have, that Kaji's the Shinji of his group. Because he's in the romantic triangle, maybe, with Misato and Ritsuko, even though it's obvious who he's actually got chemistry with. And likewise, I I, I think Shinji's in sort of a similar boat, where like he's in this will-he-won't-he with Asuka and Rei, but I think it's perfectly obvious, in spite of you know all the other things that are happening, that really... Uh, Asuka's what's going to go down to me. I'm not saying that. Yeah, well, this episode really makes it kind of doubles down on that. And we'll talk about that next. But let's first finish off the the Misato part. Sure. But the thing is, in that moment where Misato's admitting her own cowardice, you realize, oh, she's the Shinji of her group. Actually, that's that's Mm -hmm. that's why she understands him they've been building that that bond up for for so long and like in that in that moment it becomes really clear yeah i mean she even points it out you know she explicitly says like i'm no better than shinji i'm just as scared of my and like obsessed with my own father and tormented by the expectations placed on me by trying to either escape from or dominate the thing that my father has laid out for me Kaji Kaji is really out of his depth emotionally here. <laughs> like I feel like he has no actual ability to like meet Mas- what Masato is laying out in a mature way. The no. fact that his his only response to all of this is to just kiss her to make her stop hurting herself is tricky <laughs> emotionally. There's a lot of what Robin Thicke would refer to as blurred lines going on here. Oh no. Oh no. That's not good. (laughs) Yeah. It's to Kaji's credit after the kiss, it's immediately apparent that they both just need to go the fuck home and they do. And do they, they, well, that's the way I've interpreted it. It's just like, they're walking back from wherever the fuck they're walking and end up at Masato's apartment. They lay Masato down on the bed you know, face down, classic, too drunk to function mode. And he just leaves. Shouts out to that. Good for you, Kaji, for not being a complete scumbag. That's at least how I interpreted the scene. Uh, Let's talk about the other hookup that happens in this episode, namely the Asuka and and Shinji hookup. So first, let's talk about Asuka's date. What do you think actually went down here? There is no question to me that Asuka got ditched. I, it, but that never occurred to me when I was younger when I was watching this. I don't know. Clearly, I'm the conspiracy theorist of the two of us when it comes to the mysteries of Ava. But as a 30 year old guy, I'm like watching, I'm like, wait, hold up. Here's this like stuck up foreign chick, my little sister's friend. Can't stop talking about this like 30 year old dude who can't tie a tie waiting for a roller coaster. <laughs> Fuck this. Screw this. I think it's very clear that Asuka is not being entirely truthful is the way that I would put it. Clearly, she is either misrepresenting how the date went down or at least avoiding the subject of it as a way to avoid some sort of deeper emotional pain. She is projecting this sense of adulthood and being too mature for childhood romance as a way to avoid some sort of internalized anguish that is bubbling up in her about all of these issues. 
then there's the, as you mentioned, Asuka and Shinji's first kiss, which I think we should take as canon is both of their first kisses, period. Asuka probably would claim to have kissed boys prior to Shinji, but I think it is very important that we do not accept that version of reality. I think she is a liar yeah. on that count. First of all, I agree with you completely. Second of all, I, I found this scene tremendously uncomfortable when I was younger. And even like into my 20s when I would watch this show, even though it's played for laughs, but I think weirdly like playing it for laughs is in a way sort of crueler. Anytime there's a gag with Pen Pen watching Shinji doing something, it's a Shinji getting emasculated gag. However, now as I'm a little bit older, I, I, I don't like Asuka's weird probing Freudian statements. I think it's mean. But at the same time, I, it's it's sort of wholesome that there's like, here's these two people who like live together, who like clearly have feelings, don't know what to do about it and have a discussion and say, I would you like to experiment sexually with my body? I think I'd like to experiment very lightly sexually with your body. And I'd like to do this right now. And, and, and I also think it's sort of mature for at least independently and very embarrassingly both them independently to come to the conclusion that it's like we shouldn't do these things out of boredom or out of displacing other feelings we should do them for their own sakes even if mm -hmm. oscar doesn't know how to do that without making an ass of herself yeah this is such a great bubble bursting for oscar's like sphere of confidence that she's put around herself like all very subtly without actually humiliating her we come to now see all of the sort of like fault lines of her character in these episodes like her obsession with kaji kind of immediately being like kaji being like no this is not the right fucking time i don't care mm -hmm. immediately puts asuka back into the place of being a child and it allows us to see all of her behavior as inherently childlike as a result right I think that I think the series don't you think it wants you to sort of root for Shinji and Asuka a little bit? Yeah, that's why it's kind of a bummer at the end of the episode. The fact that neither of them are able to like fully admit interest in each other is painful. It goes back to that scene at the pool that like I think is like really really heartbreaking. It is. This is the 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 second go around of that same basic idea, you know, that Shinji doesn't know how to reconcile the fact that he probably does in some way want to kiss Asuka and Asuka does want to kiss Shinji but can't do it for the sake of just doing it she needs to concoct this like oh I'm bored and what are you scared because of your dead mom and all of that like it suddenly becomes this like weird aggro pissing contest instead of actually being able to just connect with each other honestly and it's so much of those two is just so painful to me because it just feels so true to fundamentally incompatible personalities attempting to reconcile with each other. Very goth, very doomed romance. <laughs> very, yeah. very, I can see Asuka going on to Etsy and ordering like a fan screen printed Joy Division t-shirt, maybe with like a cat on it or something. But you know, this scene of like her, like approaching him to smooch him is so like, like lovingly animated. And these are cells that I don't think they repeat, but like the, the scene of her, like she gets up from the table and saunters toward the camera. It's really like just lovingly detailed, like the fabric and the way her hair moves. It's as well detailed as like any of the angel fights. So I think. Yeah, no, this that that is this episode's angel fight. That's exactly right. Is is them kissing like that's the angel fight It's like instead of it being projected onto some sort of like weird mythological psychedelic horror space it's like no this is just the real thing that has been bubbling underneath the whole show is this energy in the room right now and they treat it with the same kind of level of detail it's true but i think it, it it's i clearly like asuka and shinji both need to learn a lesson and i think the next episode if we're because i think those are the three big beats on a fantastic 15th yeah. episode. Um, I, th I think that the next episode is about Shinji will now learn the lesson or at least the first step on like learning it. That's what Liliel does. That's what Liliel is, is about. So to me, there are two big things going on in the Liliel episode. The first is Masato trying out motherhood mm -hmm. for Shinji. Mm -hmm. There's, like her going out of her way to praise Shinji, you know, you're number one. And then immediately regretting that and thinking like, oh God, I've got to like admonish him when he comes home. And Ritsko points out like, oh, you're acting like his mom. Right. And 
earlier on in the episode, they've got the, the scene where Shinji is talking about Rei as like a surrogate mother figure or a potential mother figure at some point in her life. The, like the motherhood thing hangs over this whole episode. It is the big point. And subsequently, that is why the angel appears as a sort of weird inverted womb that Shinji falls back into. You know, that's that is our Freudian uh, analogy for this particular angel fight, at least in my view of it. You know, the episode, this episode does a few interesting things with that. But one of them is like the title of the bumper is The Splitting of the Breast. And, and it's trying to it's it's trying to say something about well okay I can't really make this point without talking about the main title of the episode so let's let's sort of zoom out of motherhood and into like the source of angst or anxiety right so the the title of the episode is sickness unto death and then a dot 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 sickness unto death is a book by existentialist philosopher Soren Kierkegaard and a lot of this episode has to do, I think, with Kierkegaard's ideas. But um, Kierkegaard was an influence on Sigmund Freud. And the splitting of the breast is also uh, a quote from Sigmund Freud. And so Freud hypothesized that like the, like the first pain that people spend the rest of their lives running from isn't isn't childbirth. It's when you're forced to be weaned off of breastfeeding. And again, I, I, I don't think that psychologically speaking, that's now scientifically canon. I don't know. Is psychology in as much as it's science and not part of the humanities. I don't think that's correct. Right. I, I think the general consensus on Freud is that a lot of it does not hold up to, to modern science or modern scrutiny. It is not the current goings on in psychology but that certain parts of the concepts do track with our modern conceptions right it's just he's wrong sometimes the majority of the time as probably. but as a literary criticism lens this is that's that's what this episode is going for it's it's going for like okay the yes. the, the the root cause of shinji's fucking despair is his mom's absence which might oh and this is like new it's like this is like a huge fucking piece of information and they toss it in like it, you blink and you'll miss it but this is like a critical fucking piece of information about him and gendo is like people suspected his dad of killing his fucking mom that's why her body's gone which is why he's free <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time we've heard anything about like why shinji's mother is not present at all and it is introduced with this domestic horror situation where perhaps Gendo, the person who is forcing Shinji to suffer constantly by fighting angels is also responsible for the first pain that he is truly feeling, which is the absence of his mother in his life. Like Jesus Christ, the family drama. And uh, apparently you need to get sucked into an alternate universe to face it, an alternate universe with nothing inside of it. I also just want, but before we go too much further, I just wanted to say uh, one one little spoiler, but Asuka calls him Ubermensch, which everyone knows is like a a, a Nietzschean term. Uh, Nietzsche was also an existentialist. I wonder if that's sort of like a subtle dig at like Nietzsche, where it's like it's like eh, your ideas are okay, but we're we're really gonna go with Kierkegaard on this one. Uh, your one Nietzsche reference is a joke from a character who probably doesn't understand it, even though she's German. Asuka's whole attitude also is so smarmy and petty in episode 16. Like she's literally willing to send Shinji to a, his potential death in order to prove a point about her actually being the better Ava pilot. It is like deeply fucked up and there's a lot going on in her own self image that the show doesn't like linger on necessarily in this episode, but like lays out clearly Asuka is not doing well. You're going to get it. Something is clearly flipping you know she's she's gonna get hers sooner or later probably right that's how this show works at this point you know everyone's getting owned <laughs> like misato breaks down crying after a wedding shinji gets absorbed by a giant shadow on the ground and has to like almost bleed to death in his own blood it's whatever the fuck is going on in in lilio is horrifying in its own right let me get back to kierkegaard because this is like a big fucking thing kierkegaard was a philosopher and also like a devout christian and so here's into my weird i'm the atheist i'm the atheist but here's my like religious reading of of the material kierkegaard thought that people went through spheres 
of existential existence uh, and that these spheres are sort of like tests and you can transcend one of these spheres or you can fail the test and be sort of stuck in it like a like a loop weirdly enough and the first of Kierkegaard's sphere is at least this is what I my professor called it in college in our translation was the aesthetic sphere of existence and the idea behind the aesthetic sphere is it's the part of you that just wants happiness just wants pleasure and seeks that without any sort of other deeper thought or other meaning in in one's life and Kierkegaard sort of thought that if you live your life this way eventually you're going to get to a point where it's like the law of diminishing returns like the things that made you happy when you're younger won't keep making you happy when you're older and eventually they'll just become totally sapped of meaning, unlike Neon Genesis Evangelion, which continues to give me pleasure well into my uh, adulthood. But I think it's that's sort of what he's being confronted with when he's inside Lilial's parallel dimension. It's empty. He he was looking for the like this sort of empty feel good feeling of I'm the leader and it gets him sucked into this pit of despair. And when he's in the pit of despair, he's confronted with the truth that it's like, you can't just rely on the one time your dad said one fucking nice thing about you. It's it, you're, you're going to suck it dry and then there'll be nothing left. And then you're going to be here suffocating inside the void of nothing. And you have to br- break free. And he does. There's an incredible line that the angel spits at him because we're basically interpreting it as the figure that shows up that talks to Shinji is essentially the angel inside of the angel speaking to him. The the point that the angel is getting at and the angel being the sort of striped shirt version of Shinji that's on the train with him is that you cannot define your life by one memory alone and that it actually prevents you from growing. Right. It prevents you from moving on. You can only become your fully realized self if you seek yourself beyond just what one validating instance can get you. That's why it's pointing to this idea that Shinji exists not just as Shinji Ikari within himself, but Shinji Ikari within other people. It's an idea that came up a few episodes ago at the the party sequence at Masato's house, where the reason that Asuka gets mad at Shinji is that Shinji is too concerned with the version of himself that exists in Asuka than he is with the version of himself that exists absent other people. So here he is in this completely empty space. Now he has to confront only himself, not himself as it relates to Gendo, not himself as it relates to Misato, but Shinji isolated by itself. What does Shinji Ikari mean? What does it mean to be that person? And he first has to get past this idea that his motivation is to please others. And it's only when he gets even slightly past that, just one toe past that line that he's able to escape the angel is sort of my way of interpreting what happens. I think that's, I think that's exactly right. It's interesting. Liliel is the angel of night and it, in its actual body is a shadow. um, And it's quote unquote, physical body is it's, shadow and so when when shinji's inside of it he he, i interpret the scene in the train of thought as we're going to call it the train of thought right we're going to call this the train of thought it's too obvious of a pun to not do it i i interpret the little shinji that he talks to in the train of thought as liliel trying to communicate to him on a plot level on the plot depth Mm -hmm. because and i do that because the little shinji has stripes on his shirt and we've seen other flashbacks to shinji and even in the flashbacks, Shinji's wearing his white, empty collared shirt. So the little the little kid, I think, is is that's Liliel. And when he asks who's talking to me, all it can say is Shinji Akari because Liliel's only a shadow. There's it has nothing. It has nothing to offer the world. Mm-hmm. All it can do is swallow things into nothingness and then reflect back what it's swallowed. It's probably like a like that angel's existence is likely miserable, you know. And all so that's what I'm getting out of him confronting himself and being confronted with his own failures on even like a basic psychological level. And he doesn't get rewarded with freedom until, you know, the voice of his mother asks him, are you going to be okay? And we don't hear the response, but when it says good, 
we've got to assume that Shinji gives an affirmative response where he says, yes, I will mm-hmm. be okay. And that's confidence. You know, that's, that's, the, that's not worrying. I'm not worried about if other people care about me. I think, I believe I'm going to be okay. And I believe it authentically. And it's like, okay, here's your award. Unit one goes into berserker mode. Like, there you go. There's, so there's another angle by which I want to talk about this episode. There's the Masato motherhood angle, which becomes most clear after Shinji gets out of uh, Liliel after he is freed and the entry plug opens up and we have this great mirroring of, you know, that sequence that we talk about with Shinji's mother as a shadow, Mm -hmm. a shadow looming over Shinji. And we get that line of dialogue that you talked about. That's then repeated when Masato is opening up the entry plug. It's the same blocking that sort of establishes that Masato is now the Mm -hmm. surrogate mother taking Mm -hmm. care of Shinji, literally pulling him out of this insane, weird psychedelic slayer rain and blood womb that he's just torn himself out of, you know? (laughs) So there's the other angle of looking at why does Shinji get into this mess to begin with? Because he is trying on masculinity. This is one of the first times that we've seen Shinji become confident in himself without a stable basis. He's been given these sort of like metric based versions of affirmative response from adults them saying you're testing well you're doing good now you're good now like you deserve to feel good about yourself and instead of applying that in any sort of functional or foundational way he just uses that to get himself into trouble by taking on this bizarre and like weirdly sexist i like it's a strain of like thinking that we've never seen from Shinji before where he's like kicking ass and taking, you know, chewing bubble gum is a man's job. Like that's never something that we've seen from Shinji before in the show. And it's so obviously false bravado that when he gets sucked up, you're kind of like, you feel bad because he's like a screaming child in that moment. But you're also like, clearly you're getting your comeuppance for this false bravado that you've attached to yourself. That doesn't come from a legitimate place of confidence. Mm -hmm. Whereas what you're talking about by the end of the episode is him accepting the pain. Correct. Feeling the pain. Can he then be okay? Yes. Good. You know, a very different stance from before he goes mm-hmm. into the angel. That's That's totally right. I think it's interesting that when he's inside Liliel, there's this sequence. I, I didn't get this before. There's little sequences where he's he's being confronted by voices of people who aren't him. And there's streaks of white when they talk. Um, and Liliel's voice is a horizontal streak. His is a vertical one. And I think once or twice you hear Gendo's voice. And Gendo's voice is vertical like his with a horizontal twist in the middle. In the middle, And you could interpret that as like, this is its sort of like critique of toxic masculinity a little bit. It's like, oh, you're a man? Like your dad? Your dad whose core is bent? You know, your 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 dad who's more like me, the enemy of mankind, mm-hmm. than he is like you. Your dad who does nothing but f- cause you pain. You want to be like him. It's it's like confronting him with that. Right. That's where you're getting your validation from. Then you're only going to cause yourself more pain. Let's go back to Kierkegaard for just one second because Kierkegaard's got a thing about fathers too, and Kierkegaard has. Mm-hmm. Kierkegaard is a Christian, derives a lot of his like philosophical information from like the parable of the Garden of Eden, right? And to paraphrase, because I'm I'm not like a Kierkegaard scholar, but Kierkegaard understands God's edict that casts uh, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eva, uh, out of the Garden of Eden. He interprets that as that God's command is very well if you want maturity. You will have it and you will go go forth and you will suffer. That is like that is like the nature of mature existence. And what we do with suffering is is those are the those are the important choices that we make is I think what Kierkegaard's getting at. And that's and that's what's going on. That's what Liliel is commanding him to do. Maybe that's the angelic side of Liliel. Maybe that's what that's the commandment from God. If these angels are messengers, right? That's Liliel's message to him. It's like mm-hmm. you need to be reminded that what you must do is first suffer. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really fair fucking reading on it. Do you have another point based on that? Or can we go on to the next? There's another Edenic thing inside of Liliel. And, and the other 
the other Edenic thing inside of Liliel is it's again, you'll blink if you'll miss it, but there's like a shot of Shinji handing a little thing to his mom. It's like a gift of something mm-hmm. and it's glowing red. Everything else is black and white, but it's glowing red. And you're supposed to interpret it maybe as like a berry, a piece of fruit, fruit, garden yep. of Eden, yeah. fruit. What is the fruit? But it also sort of looks like an angel core. Yeah. Note that because the whole Edenic thing with angel cores thing is one of Evangelion's hangups. I think it's also interesting that, you know, if we've been talking about Shinji being like born to do things, but when he's inside of Liliel, I'm hopping now, but when he's inside of Liliel, you know, when Jesus Christ was on the cross suffering for man's sins, the way that God commanded all men must suffer, Jesus asks in his crucifixion before he goes to the underworld and then is risen, Father, why have you forsaken me? Uh, insert insert system of a down clip right there. Shinji doesn't ask father, why have you forsaken me? He asks mother, why have you for he he asks for his mother. There's your first hint that maybe if Shinji is a messiah, he's not Jesus Christ, and he's also going to come out of an an underworld at the end of the episode. It is also crucially tying into a lot of the ideas of motherhood that we've discussed in this particular episode, but also a lot of the sort of subtle plot foreshadowing that's been going on the last few episodes so crucially we've got a few different things going on here and i just want to like brief briefly jump from one to another and just like put the, put all the information next to each other and i'm not going to say anything about the conclusion let's from. do it because that's what this episode's like first we learn that there is criteria that the marduk institute uses to decide which children are going to be ava pilots we also know that there are systems in place that allow for personalities to be uploaded from human consciousness to some sort of mechanical consciousness. We learned this in the previous pair of episodes. We then see Ray in Central Dogma attached to some sort of giant brain while inside of LCL. That's weird. Next, we see this sequence where Shinji is going out of his way to talk about Rei as a potential mother and Rei not really knowing how to deal with that. A lot going on there. I'm not sure what to make of it. We also see Rei constantly around Gendo, even at the grave site of Shinji's mother and Gendo's former wife. Why is Rei there? What does this mean to Rei? Why is Rei so important to Gendo? Finally, when Shinji is calling out for help inside of the entry plug. Nothing happens until he calls for his mother. And it is then that we see the ghostly hand come out and caress him and the the hallucinations that he's having take on a different shape. We hear the choral music, we hear his mother's voice, and then the angel goes berserk. So if you're paying attention, I think you can see what this is all getting at. Or at least there's starting to be some sort of knots tied together around the nature of the Avas, around the nature of Rey, and around what happened to Shinji's mother. I'm not spelling anything out because it's it's more complicated than any of us can explain at this exact moment. But that is the information that the show has laid out in front of you at this moment. There's I, there's just one other thing that happens, and that is they're wa- they're watching Unit One be like cleaned of the blood. Ritsuko and, and Gando are sort of the surrogate parents of the Evangelians. They, they ask if their sins are beyond forgiveness. There's a line where they're like, are sins beyond forgiveness? And also maybe, maybe the Avas hate them, right? Them specifically. And that's the thing is it's not this sort of abstract conversation about like, maybe the Avas hate humanity. Maybe there's, you know, whenever the kids talk about it, there's this sort of like generalization going on of like mankind, angels, Avas, what does it all mean? But in this particular moment, when they're in the parkas and their little, little rain suits, this is the one moment where they're like, no, what if unit one hates us in specific? And so why would a giant robot hate its creators that much if it didn't have some sort of personality, some sort of human personality? Especially if one of them maybe might have murdered someone, but the body isn't anywhere. Where's the body? 
I know that like we've talked so much shit on Gendo and Ritzko, but we have so much more opportunities to do so in the rest of the show going forward because, oh my God, does Gendo become a real fucking piece of work in the next set of episodes. I honestly, I, I could talk about episode 15 like all day. It's one of my, fi- I, I, I agree with you. It's one of the best episodes in the whole show, but we should start wrapping it down because there's a whole lot more to talk about with the next group of episodes of Evangelion. And maybe, you know, while we're talking about it, I'll be able to slip in a little more fan service as well. Thank you for listening. If you liked the episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. If you want to share your thoughts on the show or about anything really, email us at humaninstrumentalitypodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at another Avapod and on Instagram at humaninstrumentalitypod. Extra special thanks to Kira Anderson for the graphics and web design. See you next week.